All right, we're going to be in the book of Esther. Not Ezra. We've been in Ezra for the last few weeks, but not Ezra. We're going to be in the book of Esther. And I'm excited to get into this book. Uh, I'll be honest, Esther is not a book uh, during that, that I've spent a lot of time in during my lifetime. I don't know that I've ever heard more than maybe one sermon on this book. I, I've never spent any time in my own personal Bible study looking through this book. It's just never one that I've uh, ever really landed on other than just to read through to say that I read through it. So this is the first time I've ever really been able to dig in and see what is there. Uh, and I have been surprised to see what I have found. Not surprised in the sense that I didn't think there was anything there, but I think surprised in that uh, I think there's more there than the, uh, the, simple, the simple couple of sermons that I may have heard on this book. And I wonder if you won't be too. So real quick, let me just, let me just talk to you about why we're in the book of Esther at all. So we, we're, we're doing Ezra and Nehemiah. That's the focus of the study, those two books that were actually one book. But we're stopping uh, this, this week because, and we're, and we're going to be in the book of Esther, I think, for three weeks. It could end up being four if I'm in over my head, but I think it's going to be three weeks is where we're going to end up being. Um, and we're stopping here because we're six chapters into the book of Ezra. And what happens once you're six chapters into the book of Ezra, it doesn't tell you this directly whenever you're reading through it, but between chapter 6 and chapter 7, there is a massive time gap in that book. So the, the first six chapters of Ezra are, is Ezra looking back on what had happened when the first group of exiles came back from, uh, from uh, their, their time in Persia. They came back to Jerusalem. Uh, what we saw was the building of the temple and all that happened there. And uh, that's Zerubbabel, the first group that comes back. And then you have this gap of about 70 to 100 years. They're not, it just kind of depends on how you date a couple things, which one it is. But somewhere probably around 70 to 80 years, you have this, uh, you have this gap. And we've seen now so far through six chapters, this start and stop, this start and stop uh, on the temple. That's what we saw happen. You know, first three chapters, they lay the foundations. Everything stops for 17 years. But then we get to the end of chapter 6 uh, in Ezra, what we looked at last week. And Ezra says, the, the temple was built and everybody was uh, excited. And then you have this big gap where not really much of anything happens. Whenever we go back to the book of Ezra, it will pick up, uh, we'll say about 70 years later. But now... In, that, in that, that big 70-year gap is when the book of Esther takes place. That's when the events of the book of Esther happen, right smack in the middle of this. So this is why we're going to do this, because it makes sense in the timeline. And so that's where we, we come from this, and that's why we're going to stop and spend a few minutes. Probably toward the end of that 70-year uh, gap is when these events take place. And that's why we're looking through it right now. And there's a few things that you need to know about this book because it is a book that is totally different than any other book of the Bible. Esther is very different. First thing you need to know is this is not a pure history book. This is not just a retelling of events as they happen and just say, here you go. Esther is written and designed to be a story. It's designed to be a story. Now that doesn't mean that it's not historical fact Scholars debate this all over the place about whether it is historical fact or not. I tend to think that it probably is, but one thing that you can say for sure is that the book of Esther is written specifically to tell a story. They, 
so like I said, I believe these events really happen, but the story is the focus of the narrator that's writing the story. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know who the author is. We're not really sure. And uh, even as we go through this, it's going to be important for us to remember the way that this story is being told. So like I said, about three weeks, and what we're going to do is we're going to focus not so much on telling a different part of the story because it it kind of takes place in three or four different acts, but really the, the best way that I think I can tell this story is not to focus on the events as they happen, but to talk about the people, the characters of the story. And as we develop the characters, the story will play itself out. Uh, and so we'll, we'll go through that. We're not even going to talk about Esther this week. We'll get to Esther uh, next week. So we're going we're gonna to hold off on her just a little bit, but I think you're going to find that she's perhaps a more uh, uh, intriguing character than maybe some of us have heard in our, uh, in our messages. So we won't even talk about her until next week, uh, and then it'll be two weeks before we talk about uh, two of the people who, who really the central plot line, at least the, the central uh, kind of climax moment of the book, um, we won't even talk about them till two weeks from now. And that's going to be Mordecai and Haman. So, uh, and you say, well, wait a minute. I thought the book of Esther revolved around Esther. Isn't that why we call it the book of Esther? And the answer is kind of. She's clearly a, uh, a key player. She's clear, clearly a main character. But the main tension of the book actually draws our focus to something else. The main purpose of the book really kind of draws our attention uh, somewhere else. And then this morning, we're going to talk about uh, two other very specific uh, characters and what they do. There's some other things about this book that make it interesting. Uh, and so, so here's a few, and this will help us as we read through this to kind of process uh, this book. One is that we are never given any insight as to what the characters are thinking in this book. We're never told Esther does this for this reason. We're never told Esther was thinking this when this happened. Mordecai was thinking this whenever this happened. This is what the king was going to do whenever this happened, and then something in his mind changed. We don't really get that. What we get is a reporting of events. And then we are left to then interpret and to figure out why are we told about these events? Why is it that these events are included in this book? You also need to know, I, I said this book is written as a story. This is, a, this is written in a way that it is dramatic, it has tension, it has drama, it has intrigue, it has all the things that make for a really good story. When you read it and you read through it, if you can, if you can kind of piece through and pierce through some of the, the historical stuff, you realize it's got kind of building tension, rising tension, it's got the climax of the plot, it's got resolving the tension, all of the things that you think you should see in a good story. And since we are not given all of the, the, uh, the insight as to uh, what these characters are thinking, that has led to a wide variety of interpretations of this book throughout church history. Historically, this book has been uh, the source of much neglect. The early church barely talked about the book, Reformers either ignored it, or in the case of some like Martin Luther, who he had a strong anti-Semitic bent, he hated it. He thought it shouldn't be in the Bible at all. The Jewish people love it because it is the initiation of the festival of 
uh, and the Feast of Purim, which we'll talk about that in a few weeks. If you don't know what that is, we'll, we'll get to that and we'll talk about that. Uh, but they, they love um, the, to talk about this and this, the Festival of Purim. So there's a lot going on in this book. There's a lot of things that this book kind of plays out to, to today. And perhaps the biggest claim to fame of this book, the, the biggest distinguishing factor is that, uh, that this book has its main characters that, that it is kind of built around, but one character that is not named, that is surprisingly absent from this book, is God himself. The name of God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. He's never referred to, he's never discussed uh, his presence isn't acknowledged. The work of God is not acknowledged. The worship of God is non-existent in this book, at least explicitly. But I think what we're going to see when we get to the end of this book, we're going to be able to see that even though God is not named, he is clearly intended to be a character in the book, which is what makes the storytelling so important for us. Because he becomes the unseen hand that is constantly guiding things as they happen. There are a lot of the things in this book that just so happen to happen in a certain way. That coincidentally, it happened this way. Or where you would look at it and you would say, Hmm, I wonder how that happened that way. It shouldn't have happened that way historically. And that happens all throughout this book. You ever think about your life and you think about how much easier it would be if you had a narrator to follow you around? Not a narrator that's like explaining like, and then they did this, and then they did this. But I'm, I'm talking like, go back to your elementary school days when you're learning about storytelling, and I'm talking about the third person omniscient narrator. So you know what I'm talking about whenever I say that? So this is the person who looks at all that is going on and knows what everyone is thinking and can give you commentary on what they're thinking or give you commentary on what is actually happening. The characters may not know, but the narrator knows. Have you thought about how helpful that would be to help you process something like that, to kind of help you make sense of the world and what is going on, or at least help prepare us for what is about to come if we had somebody like this? You know, we could go to any UT coach introductory press conference over the last 15 years, and we could hear a coach say, this is the time when we bring Tennessee back to the, the prominence that it deserves on the national stage. Narrator, Tennessee would in fact not return to national prominence on this stage. Um, can, don't you think that would be helpful if we had a narrator to tell us that at those press conferences? Or if on January 1st, 2020, while you are working out and you are fulfilling the first day of your New Year's resolution and you're saying, 2020 is it, this is finally going to be my year, narrator, 2020 would in fact not be his year. In fact, it would be no one's year. That would be helpful to know that ahead of time, right? If you had the narrator that could do that. So that whenever something comes your way, you might have a narrator that would say, while he can't see it now, this trial would become the source of some of his most profound lessons in life and eventually be considered the turning point for this, this stage of his life. It seems terrible now, but this truly was an amazing thing for this person. It would be great to have something like that. Because for us, all we know in the moment is what is happening. All we know is what we can see in front of us. We have no real way to process 
until we get further in the future and look back on our lives at some point, and then we are able to say, oh, I can see what God was doing then. Oh, I can understand what God was trying to do at that time. I can understand why this happened in my life. I can see how this played out and how it was a good thing or how it actually was a really bad thing. What I thought was a good thing was truly ended up being a bad thing. It would be helpful for us to have that. But the reality is all we get is the events and the people in front of us. That's all we get. We don't get the rest of it. We don't get the explanation for what the event is about. We don't. Sometimes we get it further in the future. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we'll never know why certain things happen. Sometimes we'll never be able to fully understand why this happened to us. And so in that way, the book of Esther is very much like our life. We don't get the aid of a narrator who knows all and can explain things to us in the moment. All we get is what is happening right in front of us, and it's time for us to figure it out. To trust God and to say, God, help me understand what is happening. This book is full of grittiness. It's full of chaos. It's full of pain. It's full of confusion and frustration. It's full of scheming. All of these things that we don't know how they're going to play out, and the characters at the time didn't know how they were going to play out. It's full of all of those things, just like your life is. Grittiness and chaos, frustration and events that don't make sense, pain and confusion and trying to figure out what, where in the world is this going to go. That's what this book is, that's how it's written. And that's the same way that we can read it along with the characters. The difference is we do know the end of the story. So we can look back and give some information, not totally, because we don't know everything the characters are thinking, but we certainly can look back and we can say, this is what this character thought, but let me tell you why we know now this character was wrong. So I hope that whets your appetite for this book just a little bit, um, because, it's gonna, because what we're going to do today, honestly, it's a little bit of a different message for me that that there's not going to be a ton of application to take away from this because really what we're doing is setting the scene for the events that will follow. We're just going to cover chapter 1 in the book of Esther today. We're going to look at two characters, as I told you. We're going to look at a king, and we're going to look at his queen, his wife. That's all we're going to cover, but it's going to set the stage for everything else that's going to happen over the next couple of weeks. So we're going to be looking at this... um, Yeah, we're going to be looking at the king and the queen. The queen is not Esther, at least not yet. We're going to be looking at this king named Ahasuerus. So you thought Zerubbabel was funny. Now you got Ahasuerus. So we got another funny name that we got to deal with. And then we're going to start by looking at his queen in Esther chapter 1. So let's read Esther chapter 1, verse 1. And we're going to read all the way down through verse 9. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors in the provinces were before him. And while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 
180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave, gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a great feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of whatever that is, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So for us to understand this book, for us to understand what all is going on, we've got to understand the power and the presence that was King Ahasuerus. That's his, key, that's his, that's his Persian name. His Greek name is Xerxes. You may have heard of King Xerxes. If you studied much world history, you know this guy because he towers over this period of world history because he was the most powerful man in the world. It says he reigned from India to Ethiopia, which is also known to the Persians at the time as the world. He ruled the world. He knew all of it, or at least most of it anyway. It was his he ruled over all of it. Some, some people estimate it's, it's close to 3 million square miles that he ruled over. And this dude knows how to party. He is throwing a massive party here. Why? Likely because he was gaining support from his governors and the military men for the next battle that was to come. He's going to invade Greece in what would culminate in one of the most significant battles in history, the Battle of Thermopylae. That's, one, that's the one that the movie 300 is about. I don't recommend you watch that as part of Bible study this week. Uh, but that is what the movie is about. Um, and this is the, the, the king that directed that battle. It's one of the most famous in history. It's one of the most... Uh, so all of this, this is happening probably in 483 BC. This is prepping for that war that is about to happen. And he's not having a party. You know, a lot of times people will throw parties for the spoils of war. So they come back and they say, this is the, the spoils of war. And so they, they, they get all this stuff and, and they come back and they celebrate the victory. He's got a different philosophy. His philosophy is, we're going to party now. In part because he was that sure that they were going to win. And in part because he wanted to make sure that he got everyone on his side within his kingdom, especially the governors and the military men, the military generals, those guys that led all these other provinces. He wanted to make sure that they were on board. And what else can you do to make sure people are on board with you than to get them fat and drunk for 180 days? That's what he does. He brings them in and he says, whatever you want, it's yours. It's yours. You run with it. For six months, you're on vacation. You are the honored guests of the king, and you can have whatever you want. Now, of course, the, the end of that is that he knows at the end of six months, he's going to say, now that I've given you all that you want, I need you to give me what I want, which is soldiers to go and fight this battle. So that's what this is all about. And the author clearly wants us to understand the scale of this 
party and the status of its host. It describes the palace that that these parties would take place, this marble and purple linens and fine cotton and and golden couches. This is not something you go to rooms to go and bring these in. These are specially made just for the king. Golden couches. Why do you have golden couches to sit on? Just to show off. That's it. That's why he has these. Just to show, I'm so rich, I'm going to let you sit on my gold. Scrooge McDuck has got nothing on me. This is everywhere. This is wealth for the purpose of showing off wealth. And that is it. It's wealth so extreme and extravagant they can't even spend it all. Food, gold, marble, pearl, drink, whatever. It's there in abundance. It's intentionally over the top. Why? Because it was Ahasuerus and he was the most powerful man in the world and he wanted you to know it. And there was no comparison. He was, in his mind, the king of kings. And then he finishes this party on an epic. So it says it's 180 days, right? Six months. It's probably not like wall-to-wall partying for 180 days. It's probably a lot of like kind of business, talking business in the day. Then at night you feast on big feasts. And so it was a lot of getting people fat and happy. But it wasn't wall-to-wall partying until you get to to the, the, the very end. When you get to the very end, what you get is... An epic seven-day, no-holds-barred, everything-is-allowed bender. Just go for it. Whatever you want, it's yours. Nonstop. 24-7 for an entire week. You have it all. That is the party. That is the king. And he wants you to know he's powerful enough and he's rich enough that he can give you all of this. And then he wants you to believe and he can give you so much more. Just be on his side. And then it introduces us to our next key player for today's part of the story. And honestly, this is kind of a story within a story. Queen Vashti. Queen Vashti. It says that she had a feast for the women of the palace that, quote-unquote, belonged to the king. So this is his other wives, and this is his harem and anyone else that he decided was his. Then they would be his. So he, there's this party that's happening, but they are in a separate party away from the men. If you've been around drunk men, you understand why the women are away from the men. They are somewhere else. They are totally in a different spot. Totally separate during this time until finally, after all this feasting, it was time to get the women involved, which is where verse 10 picks up for us. Verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, a.k.a. when he was drunk, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. So after all of this partying, seven days, Ahasuerus says, now it's time to get the ladies involved in the party. Ahasuerus has called for his wife to come and to show off for the men. Fully drunk, fully off the rails, men, no holds barred. She is to wear her crown to show she belongs to the king, but she is not there to show off the crown. And then verse 12 is where we get our first 
indication that things are not going to go as King Ahasuerus planned. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. So she does not silently comply with the wishes of the king. She sends word back through his messengers, tell the king, I'm not coming. He's going to have his party by himself. The most powerful man in the world has just been told no. And not just been told no by another king of another province, not been told no by one of his military leaders, not been told no by a political leader that he has brought there. He has been told no by one of his wives, and not just one of his wives, but by the top dog, Queen Vashti. Now, it's clear this is not going to work out well for her at this point. There's no scenario in which this goes well for Vashti, and she knows it. The only question is, how bad is this going to be for her? The king is, he is furious. He is angry. You can imagine the embarrassment that would come with this. He's trying to throw this party in such a way that everyone loves him. He's concerned about everybody's view of him. And then he's got these people in his ear that makes everything even worse. Look in verse 15. According to the law, what, has been, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuch. So this is her, his wise men come up to uh, the king and say, King, what's going to happen to her since she's not done what you said she had to do? Listen, nobody tells him no. Especially the queen. So, king, what are you going to do about it? You have to do something. What are you going to do? Then Mimikan, this is one of his advisors, said in the presence of the king and of the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are all, who are all in the provinces of the king. So how has she offended or done wrong to the people in the provinces? For the queen's behavior will be, known, will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. And since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. So you get what happens there? All of the advisors are like, hey, get your wife in order before our wives start doing this. This is a problem for us. We need you to take care of this because we can't have the women talking back to us. That's pretty much the, the way that this goes. That's what they say. You can't let Vashti do this and get away with it. Because if she can do it to you, what in the world is going to stop our wives from doing it to us? Man, I know there's like a Valentine's Day joke in here somewhere. Just don't, don't make it. Just let it go and let it, let it roll. He says, you can't do that. You're the most powerful man in the world and you can't control your, li- your wife. How in the world are we supposed to control ours? And remember, the whole point in this feast is for the king to show his power and his greatness to show just how in power and in control he is. And he wants all these people on his side. So now he's got a problem. He's got a problem because there's, start, there's rumblings among his wise men and among these political leaders. Like, he's got to do something or this is going to end poorly. He's going to look bad and we're going to look bad. He knows he's got to do something. 
What Vashti does here is extraordinarily brave. There's no other way to describe it. Esther is known for her bravery here, and we'll talk about that next week. But what Vashti does is extraordinarily brave. She knows that she's ending her pampered life in the palace. She knows that all privilege she had as the queen is gone. She knows she's walking away from the most envied position in the kingdom. And why does she do it? We don't know. It doesn't tell us why she does it. We don't get that information. Again, we don't know the internal motivations of anyone in this story. So we don't know why she does it. Some speculate that she is standing up for the other women. It says the, the other women that belong to King Ahasuerus, that she's standing up for the other women. If she stops it in her position, then perhaps these drunk men will not now not be able to move on and assault the other women of the palace. And that's possible. She might be doing that. Most think she decided that what was going to happen to her at the party was worse than whatever else the king could do to her. And so she just said, I'll take my punishment before I will walk into that room with those men. We don't know much about Vashti, but we do know this. She had guts. She was brave. She was the epitome of bravery. And in the end, we know that she made her choice, which means the king had to make his. Verse 19. If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes. If you don't know anything about the laws of the Persians and the Medes, that's going to come into, that's going to be important here. If you've not heard that kind of saying, that cliche, that means if it's written, in, it's written and it will come to pass. There is no changing it. That's the law of the, Persia and the, Medes, the Persians and the Medes. So that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. Better than she, as in, will listen and do what she's told. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mimikan had proposed. So the king could have chosen to have her killed. For whatever reason, again, we don't know why, he does not. But he does divorce her. Never sees her again. She never sees him again. She strips her of her title, of her wealth, of her position, of everything. Throws her out on the streets. And that's the end of Queen Vashti. All that we know about her. The chapter ends with chapter 1 with an unmistakable message. Descent is not welcome in the kingdom. You do what the king says, and you do it when he says it, and you do it how he says it. The king is to be honored above all else. And yet this great king, the king of kings, this man of extraordinary wealth and power, who seeks to rule over hundreds of smaller uh, kingdoms, this man who, who, who commands three million square miles to call his own, can't even manage to control his own wife. He punishes her, yes, but he punishes her because he cannot make her submit. She holds the line. She refuses to bow. And it is a stunning reversal of roles here in the first chapter. 
The all-powerful king forced to deal with an unsubmissive wife. The all-powerful king realizing maybe for the first time in his life that he can't have everything he wants. That he's not as powerful as he thinks he is. The roles become reversed because Vashti takes the power back and says, I'm done. And she becomes the power player in chapter 1. This will become the theme of this book. Role reversals. Where things happen in ways that they shouldn't. Where the poor and the forgotten and the abused become the powerful. And the ones calling the shots. Where what should happen strangely doesn't. Where the person that should win manages to flounder. Where the underdogs somehow become the victors. You see, Ahasuerus had it all on a level we can't even begin to comprehend. We think that if we can somehow just get all the things that we want, we'll be good. If we can somehow just get one more thing. This is what we looked at last week, right? If we can just get one more thing, we'll be good. The trick is just trying to figure out how can we get through this world getting as much, as much and as many of those things as we can without costing us everything. It's this, this cost-benefit analysis that constantly is happening with us where we're trying to figure out how can I get everything without it costing me anything. And the closest that we can get to that ratio, the better we are, the more successful we are. Ahasuerus maximized that ratio. He had everything and it cost him nothing. He was born into privilege. He rose up to a, 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 to a, a kingdom that was already expanding and all he had to do was press it even more. It cost him nothing to get everything. And for most of us, that is the guiding principle of our lives. What can we do to get more and it cost us less? What Esther 1 tells us is that we can have all the resources we want. We can drink from our goblets of gold and we can sit on our golden couches and we can have power to call hundreds of government and military officials and they will come running. We can have the resources to take a six-month vacation with the purpose of throwing ourselves a massive party. We can have 50,000 people there to celebrate us. We can rule the known world. And it only takes one moment, one person, one event, one accident, one thing that no one saw coming to completely derail everything. And why is that? It's because we aren't God. Hashuerus thought he was God. Not a God, the God. He thought he was all-powerful. And it just took one moment, one woman, to stand up and say, no, you're not. And his illusion of control is shattered. King Ahasuerus wasn't all-powerful. He wasn't God. Neither am I, and neither are you. We aren't in control. And I wonder what it requires in our lives. In each one of us, this question, the answer to this question is different. But I wonder what it requires in our lives for our eyes to be open to this fact. 
the quicker we can surrender our false claim to the throne of our lives so that God can assume his rightful place, the better we will be. He is the king of kings. He is the one on the throne. Yet each one of us in our own way seeks to be our own king and rule it all. That is the essence of sin. We are just like Ahasuerus. We just don't have as much money. There's so much more I want to say here. There's so much more I want to be able to come back to, but I don't have time this morning, so we're, going to, we're just going to cut it off here. But the next two weeks, we're going, to, we're going to see these role reversals play out in these other characters. And I'm telling you, there is a lot for us to learn here. The final word I want to leave you with here is that, the, is, is, is that we have these actions of two people, Ahasuerus and Vashti. One who considers himself the king of kings and one who simply decides, I'm not going to take it anymore. What we don't have is any indication that God is anywhere in this story. We read through all of chapter 1. He's not referred to. He's not alluded to. His name is not mentioned. Ahasuerus nor Vashti. There would be no reason for them at the time to... To, uh, to, to, to know Yahweh, to be worshipers of Yahweh. We don't have any indication that God is anywhere in this story. And we won't until we get to the end of the book. But when we get to the end, we can be the third person narrator that knows all, right? We can serve in that role. And then we can read the opening words of this chapter a little bit differently. Go back with me. Esther chapter 1. Very beginning, verse 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. And while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days, we can step in with the role of the narrator and we can say the king was in fact not as great as he thought he was. For little does King Ahasuerus know that even his own wife isn't coming to this party he has thrown. And God himself was about to use it all to his glory because he is the only king of kings in this story. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning it is our confession that we all seek to be little kings of our little kingdoms. That the, the, the desires of our hearts lead us in this direction far too often. That when we wake up in the morning, we are far more concerned with our own kingdoms and how we can rule and pretend that we control them than we are with the kingdom of God. That is our corporate confession. Father, this morning we repent of that desire. Father, the only one who belongs on the throne is you. Yet our sin is constantly charging hard 
trying to overthrow you. Father, I thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ. That we can confess that that is our heart and that is our, that is our sin. And Father, we trust that you will save us from ourselves. And that we would truly proclaim you as the king of all kings. It's in Christ's name we pray.